I'm going to, I'm insecure about today because I know you're all primed for like give me the eight steps to have the program to do this. And you're going to leave so dip, deeply disappointed. So um, I'm just putting that up front right now. I do want to get us to talking about well, what does this kind of look like and give you an imagination I think of and actually probably end up giving you more stories on what faith formation looks like inside of secular age. And I'm, and I'm, I'm trusting that you're here because you're super creative people and this will just inspire you to think about your, your own church. I was reading, a, uh, when I was on vacation, um, uh, a Kathleen Norris book and she was talking, it was her book about marriage and she was saying, she had this really great line where she said, um, I know right now you're asking me for the steps to do that, but that, that you want, you want like the practical steps, but I'm a storyteller, so that shit's on you. And uh, I kind of feel like saying that to you. And I just passively, passively aggressively did without having to own it. So there you go. Uh, but we will, we will get some kind of feel of, of what it feels like. And I think, um, I'm rambling on talking about Hitler and other things, but um, we'll have enough time to have some dialogue, I think, because I've been just taking you full board, downhill, fast. Um, so we'll hopefully get to that. So I wanted to, to finish these diagrams and then review a little bit of what we did uh, Tuesday down in the basement and then we'll launch into what does this look like. So we left yesterday, I think this is where we left off, where these two diagrams, these two triads come together and then you get nauseous and sick and, um, and then we get to this Nova effect. Now where this Nova effect is, is born out of, remember we said Taylor's calling the Nova effect this explosion of all sorts of third options. And it only happens inside of an age of authenticity when authority becomes only what speaks to you and every human being should have a right to define for themselves what it means to be human. In some ways, you know, we talked about denominations in threat or in, in crisis um, yesterday. And again, I want to reiterate that I'm all for denominations. This is being recorded. I'm all for denominations. Uh, but we just are at a really difficult time, I think, where things just are quite difficult, especially as mainline denominations more and more want to embrace an ethic of authenticity. And I want you to remember that this is a real contribution that Taylor is making, is that authenticity is an ethic. It isn't hedonism. It's an ethic that every human being should have a right to define for themselves what it means to be human. That's great. The problem is, is when it gets so caught up in an expressive individualism, it's really hard to have any kind of outside nor normative moral frameworks that can lead to some kind of discussion. And I think mainline denominations have done a very good job at saying there's something really true about this ethic of authenticity. And there's been deep forms of sexism and racism um, and things that have, have happened in the age of mobilization. And we have people's experiences have not always been honored. But there also is the issue that we know this, that the denominations sociologically, and let me underline sociologically, that are doing the best. This is hard for us to face. But those that are doing the best by like sociological growth numbers are those that have very firm gender roles. Those that are mainly one ethnic group. That's hard for us to face. And again, I don't want to say they're doing the best theologically. I think that's a theological big time problem. But sociologically, like being able to balance budgets, to see four to five percent growth, they, t they tend to be more homogeneous and they tend to have stricter gender roles because it can line up 
mobilization and they deny authenticity in a certain way or they try to deny it in a certain way. Um, and it allows them to have some kind of institutional stability. So there's a lot of work that we have to do within this. But what I want to get at here is that this idea, we've been living, I mean, here we are in 2019. I really think mainline Christianity was over in the early 1970s. I mean, it's been holding on. But it's, it's firm hold on, if you want to use economic phrases, on the market that the market, the religious markets have been deregulated in America since basically 1969. Um, and no one did that. That wasn't, the, that wasn't the government. That just happened in people's consciousness. And we've been trying to figure this out. I don't want to get into this too much, but it's just a really, it's a, it's a really interesting story because when the South goes ablaze with, um, uh, in, the civil, in, the, in the civil rights movement, the pre-civil rights movement, it is mainly the only people that outnumber or the only people that outnumber clergy, mainline clergy who go down to say March and Selma or, um, or be present there are, are university students, college students. And so this was a, that was one of the first movements that that uh, starts to bring forth an age of authenticity in the sense of saying, listen, not everyone, the American project is not it's insufficient funds. This American project, this American dream. But there was a second wave of protests, and that second wave of protests came mainly from white, middle-class, upperly mobile kids who took on the counterculture. They took on a very bohemian kind of sense of being the hippies. And they decided that conformity itself was bad, and that any sort of kind of organized, even religion or organized government or whoever was in charge was not to be trusted. And it became almost, it became cognitive dissonance because mainline pastors had fought in the first wave of this, fought in, 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 or were present, at least some of them were present in, um, in, in, in the civil rights movement. And then when the counterculture came, it basically said anyone who's part of organized religion is done. They have, we can't trust them. They're all fascist pigs. And they're like, well, what, wait, no, we were, we were there, but it was over. And in many ways, organized religion becomes disen, disen, uh, becomes disestablished um, from that time, and those markets become unregulated. And that's where you see this, you know, 70s into the 80s, you get this kind of explosion of all sorts of third ways, and we've been living with that. Now, what's fascinating is that you need what Taylor calls the imminent frame to get this explosion. Now, the Im imminent frame, um, well, I'll give you a quote from Taylor. This is what he says about it. Have you seen a picture of Taylor yet? There he is. He's a cute old guy. Um, it says this, the imminent frame is a constructed social space that frames our lives entirely within a natural rather than a supernatural order. It is the circumscribed space of the modern social imaginary that precludes transcendence. Okay, so what I mean by that, and you all inherit it, all of us, um, for the most part, even if you, you grew up in um, kind of a, a small Pentecostal community and you really cast out demons in your, in your uh, church and things like that. For the most part, the larger society that you inherit and that you live in is an imminent one. It is one that is a natural order, not a supernatural order. When you go back to the ancient regime, the presumption, if anything happens, um, like there is an eclipse, the first, first assumption is that's a supernatural thing. If someone's sick here, if you're living in a supernatural order, your first thought is this is some kind of metaphysical, demonic, or whatever reality. 
all of us, I would assume everyone in this room, but probably all of us across our society, the first response is a natural one. Is she diabetic? Has she not had her insulin? Is this, uh, you know, is, is there some kind of medical medical reason for this? So we, we inherit this imminent uh, reality where our lives are framed by imminence. So here's an example of this, because this seems a little obscure. So I'm gonna, I want to show you uh, some lyrics from a pop star, and this shows how lame I am, because this, this would have been really relevant, and you would have thought it was super cool eight years ago. So this is Lily Allen, who's a British pop star, and she, this is the best example I have of this. So she has this lyric called, uh, these lyrics from the movie, or the movie, the song called The Fear, and she says this, she says, life's about film stars and less about mothers, but it doesn't matter because I'm packing plastic, and that's what makes my life so effing fantastic. <laughs> All right, so be careful ever exegeting pop stars' lyrics. Um, but more than likely, this means she either has a credit card with a huge credit limit on it, but more than likely, it means she's had her breasts enhanced, and that's what makes her life so effing fantastic. So you can get this sense. She's very snarky. She's very kind of in your face. But this is the line I want you to see. She says, I'm a weapon of massive consumption. It's not my fault it's on program to function. Now here comes the imminent frame. Now I'm not a saint, but I'm not a sinner. But everything's cool as long as I'm getting thinner. All right, that is the imminent frame. Now we're gonna, she's being snarky. She's kind of being middle finger in your face, kind of. But what she's basically saying is like, listen, it doesn't really matter to me. It surely doesn't keep me up at night if I'm a saint or if I'm a sinner. Now we go back 500 years. We go back to the, the dawn or right around the time of the Protestant Reformation, and that basically is all everyone really cared about. Was, was I a saint? Was I a sinner? When you're living in a supernatural order as opposed to a natural order, you really care if you are saint or sinner. What is the destiny for you? And when you're living in a society where people are being wiped out in apocalyptic plagues, you really care about that too, about what's happening there. And Luther has this incredible theological, constructive theological breakthrough, where people, Luther himself, quite literally tears his hair out trying to figure out is he a saint or is he a sinner? Is God gracious or is God not? Does he need to pray more? Does he need to sleep on a hard bed? How does he make sure that he is a saint and not a sinner? And then he has a great theological breakthrough of justification by faith alone, but that gets worked out in a really practical way that doesn't seem practical to us at all anymore, where he makes the assertion that says, no, you are simultaneously both saints and so it's not really an either-or, it's a both-and. And that becomes liberating to many people across Europe. That becomes incredibly good news all across the continent and into England until about 2010, go with me, until she sits down and writes this pop song and she echoes what's been going on probably for 50 years of saying, Saint or Sinner, don't even care. But you know what keeps me up at night? You know what frightens me? Summertime. Swimsuit season. That's my existential crisis. What are people going to think of me when I'm in my swimsuit? What's that going to be like? That becomes a very imminent reality. So to live in an imminent frame is that even your, what gets your heartbeat going tends to be more imminent than, um, than transcendent realities. So we live in this imminent frame, but the deal about the imminent frame, Taylor says, is that we can't help looking over our shoulders from time to time, looking sideways, living our faith in a condition of doubt and uncertainty. So because your young people live in an imminent frame, 
and I'm sure you all embrace this, but because they live in an imminent frame, there's just no way they can't doubt. It's just endemic to being in a sec- this kind of secular age. That doubt is going to be there. So if the point of faith formation is to get the young people to some place where they will not doubt their faith, it will be impossible, and if you go for it, it will probably become ministerial malpractice. And we have all sorts of people who now show up and tweet or write blogs or whatever that talk about that ministerial malpractice that was done to them when they had doubt. And we're, we're made to feel strange for doubting. And one of the things Taylor is telling us is that we all doubt. There's no way. Because you inherit an imminent frame. If you're in 1500 and you're inheriting a supernatural frame, you don't need to doubt. And belief is obvious. But all of us, and neither of these frames necessarily on their own are true. I'm not trying to say one's true and one's not. But I'm saying these are the kind of larger frameworks you get. And so you can't help it. You can't help but wondering once in a while, even when you're writing a dissertation on the atonement or something, or even when you are practicing the high holy days of Easter, you can't help but wonder once in a while, hear a kind of doubt in the back of your mind as your pastor or whatever, and wonder, hmm... So, do I believe this? Or is this just the family I was raised in? And if I would have been born somewhere else, would I still believe this? Or is this true? Or could this possibly just be psychological transference? Maybe is this just an evolutionary trick? You know what I mean? Like, we have this extended consciousness that evolution has said that this will keep us alive. But if you, have, if you focus on your finitude too much, it will, like an engine without gas, just seize up consciousness. So as an evolutionary pass around, we create gods and create senses of eternal life that keep us extending our consciousness and living human lives. Maybe that's all this is. Maybe this is just false pattern recognition. Like the one of the ways you survive is by figuring out which flowers to eat and which not. Do you eat flowers? Well, you know, which things to eat, which nuts to eat, which not to eat. And so human beings become really good as an evolutionary trick to pick out patterns. Well, maybe we become so good at it that we start to see clouds or we see a bush that burns that seems weird and we start to assume that's a god. That's all this is. You can't help escape that once in a while. But that Taylor says it works the opposite way too. If you believe that, if you're like, I got to figure it out. That's all it is. That's all this is. This is just false pattern recognition. That's why he says every believer doubts. But then he also wants to say, remember I said this Tuesday, every doubter sometimes believes. Because he, you, may, you may live in Brooklyn and make your own hemp sweaters and have this all figured out that all this is is false pattern recognition. But then you fall in love, and that makes you wonder, I don't know, maybe. And then you adopt a child with your partner, and then that first time that child's put in your arms, whoa, something happens. And you start to think to yourself, ah... If this is false pattern recognition, this is a damn thing, man. Like, this is, there's something big that's going on here. And you can respond by shoving that down to me. Like, oh, this is, okay, that's all that is. But his point is, is that even the doubter sometimes believes, is, is opened up to this. And this is what it means to live in an imminent frame. And this is what he calls cross-pressure. Whatever side it comes on to live inside this imminent frame where there's this good of every human being has a right to define for themselves. What are your experiences? Speak your experiences. You can't help but be crossed up sometimes. So if you believe, you'll get crossed up. Maybe it's just false pattern recognition. If you don't believe, sometimes you'll get crossed up. Maybe there's something more in the world. 
one way to look at faith formation and one way that youth ministry has tended to look at faith formation is to be deeply afraid of cross pressure. Actually, parents fund you and want you to keep their kids packaged and safe from cross pressure. This becomes a political, a political conversation, how you front this with parents. But if they are kept from cross pressure, there can be no faith formation. I mean, it, it will be maybe some kind of form of religious socialization, but it will get whacked out at some point and all fall apart. That part of what faith formation has to do is take them into cross pressure. Cross pressure is not easy, but cross pressure is our friend. And there, it just, there's just no way not to live um, cross pressured in one way or another. Does that make sense? All right. So, uh, and even Lily Allen gets cross pressured. She says this. So she's got these, you know, these verses that um, life's more about film stars and less about mothers, and I'm packing plastic, and I'm not saying I'm necessary. But then the chorus goes like this. It's much more, it's probing. It's kind of in your face, middle finger, and then the probing chorus that says, I don't know what's right or what's real anymore. I don't know how I'm meant to feel anymore. When do you think it all becomes clear because I'm being overtaken by the fear? So her, her chorus is really cross-pressure. Is there meaning here? There's got to be more meaning in life than just what I look like in a swimsuit and getting thinner. But is there? But there's got to be. Maybe there is. I wonder if there is. All right, so this leads us um, then to our last triad and then gets us into some stories about what this actually looks like. Last triad of Taylor, then I'm going to give you one of the tri my triads. And this is just really, we'll go really quick review because we did this on Tuesday in the basement. So he wants to summarize all of this with what he calls the three seculars, which I add another one, the fourth here. But we talked yesterday, and I just want to point out these kind of dynamics that are play. We looked at, uh, on Tuesday, Secular Zero, which you, you are probably all are like, now, yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it. Um, this is just the ancient regime. This is just a world where you can't not believe. So there is a kind of, there's no conflict, really. I mean, that's not quite true to say. But there's a, these things fit together like pieces, the sacred and the profane. They're, they're, they're linked together. There's a system that holds um, then you move to secular one. Remember we talked about on Tuesday in the basement if you were there. And, and this becomes a conflict. There becomes a conflict between the public and the private. And religion particularly becomes a private reality. Remember I said there's, we, this still holds on, holds on for us. Like the thing to remember about Taylor, especially as we enter into the secular one, two, and three, is that they all, once they arrive, they always continue to arrive, if that makes sense. So once historically they show up, then they continue to show up, if that makes sense. So like, for instance, if you're, someone asked, I think, the other day, like, what period would this kind of be? Or maybe it was yesterday, in another seminary yesterday. But we're, we're talking kind of like somewhere between 1776, like after the American Revolution, probably in the 19th century into the mid-20th century, this kind of shows up. But really like a 19th century phenomenon. But once it shows up in the 19th century, it's still with us. It still shows up. So we still have a sense of like things you don't talk about at dinner parties, right? Like that's what I said the other day. You don't talk about sex. Why? Because sex is put in, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a private thing. It's not for public consumption. So is politics, which has probably got us really screwed up. Um, so is money. Like you don't ask people how much money they make. Um, and then so is religion. You don't talk about this because this is a private thing. So now you actually take God in a sense, out of the public realm. Still can be important to people um, in, in their private. Now, one of the ways that this helps me make sense of this 
is think about, some people call, call think about the American exception, that America, compared to all the Western countries, seems to remain the most secular. I'm looking at a Canadian. Like, compared to Canada, people talk about church, people go to church. In America, it's, there's churchy language. One of the reasons that America is the exception, and it'll be interesting, you, well, we can talk Canada another time, because Canada might have a different history than the, than the continent and um, even the UK. But one of the reasons that America, in some sense, you could say that the US is the most secular of all the Western countries, but only at a secular one level. What happens with the states and when America is formed is an absolute clean break happens between the church and the state. Completely clean. So it is, when it comes to secular one, it is the most secular of countries. That you separate, complete separation of church and state. Particularly in Germany, France, England, that break of secular one does not break clean at all. It fractures, but it doesn't really pull apart. So the Queen of England is still the head of the Anglican Church. The public and the private don't really pull apart. They break, but they don't pull apart. They're still, they're still held together. Which means when you get to a secular two perspective, which remember we said what secular two is, is it's just a classic secularization theory. Secular two is a world where fewer people go to church. Now fewer people are actually going to church. And we, if you do, um, sociologists have talked about this crazy phenomenon where if you do, uh, they, they'll do this with uh, empirical studies, they'll do uh, time, time journals where people keep time of what they did. Um, when they keep those, they realize that Americans are closer to Europeans in church life and things. But when it comes to self-report, like if a sociologist calls you and says, did you go to church this Sunday? Or how many, times, how many times this month did you go to church? Europeans always lie and Americans always lie, but in a completely different ways. <laughs> Europeans might go to church twice a month, and when they call them and say, did you go to church this month? No, I didn't go to church at all. No, we don't do that. When Americans, Americans haven't been a month to church in three months, and they're like, yeah, we, we, we go through at, least three times, at least three times a month. That they lie about going to church, and Europeans lie. If they do go to church, they say no in these, in these reports. And that's because in the States, because America is the most secular Western country in a sense of secular one, it is the least secular country in sense of secular two. Because what happens is, be, think of England, because secular one does not break clean and there's not a really clear divide between the public and the private, between the bureaucratic class and the aristocratic class and the church, you can, in one full swoop, after the 1960s, deny both the state and the church at the same time. You, just like in the states, that same movement happens, and we say, and all the young people go down to Washington and march on it, hell no, we won't go. But that's that whole, we cannot trust the state, they are lying to us about Vietnam, has nothing to do with the church, really. I mean, in some sense, you can't trust anyone in authority. You don't trust anyone over 30. But it's not one clean swoop to, to deny them all. Now, actually, you can get these kind of countercultural pastors who tend not to be mainline. Remember, I said the mainline is kind of dumb, but you can have evangelical pastors, and particularly kind of evangelical pastors in California, who come alongside and say, yeah, this is what we've been saying all along. And American Christianity takes a shift more towards conservative Protestantism because it's more relevant, it's more into your own experience. Um, so, it, but in, in, say, in France or in England, 
when you realize that the government is a lie and they're just trying to keep their, their power, then you deny the church in one full swoop. So the United States is the most secular country in a secular two or secular, secular one sense, but for the mo for the most part, this is changing now. But historically, and like in the last three decades, has been the least secular in a secular two perspective. Now, okay, you're like we didn't care about this global thing. All right, but this is where we, we get into thinking about kind of faith formation again. Almost all of our conversations about faith formation get, I think, really locked in a secular two perspective. How can we get young people to come? How can we get young people to stay? Um, my church paid me to figure, to, because they finally recognized that there were no young people in the church, and they wanted me to keep them. How do we get them to stick here? How do we keep them to, to stick around? It gets really framed by this secular two perspective. And it then does become a conversation of religious spaces and a-religious spaces. I've said this, probably you've said this, people are saying this outside the room. People will say things like, hey, if our kids will get up at 5 a.m. For, swim, for swimming, why won't they get up at 5 a.m. to read their Bible? In other words, there's a kind of sense if they'll, if they'll give commitment, interest, loyalty to a-religious places, how can we win them over to give that same kind of loyalty, interest, commitment to religious spaces? And at a certain sense, that just seems to make sense. But any of you who have tried to do it know that it is damn hard. And it's really hard because I think what's really driving us and where we're, even the states is much more like the rest of the world is our real issue that we confront is not a secular two issue, but a secular three issue. And it's just not the same comparison to compare, say, going to confirmation and going to basketball practice or SAT prep. It's not the same. Secular too is an uh, abstraction because it assumes those are the same because people are just making decisions about their interests. But it isn't because in Secular 3 we realize those decisions are made about with a projection towards what is good and what is a good life. And in a secular two, three perspective, what happens is transcendence, the sense of divine action, becomes doubted. And it even becomes silenced. And inside of that, it is much better, it is much gooder, if I can talk like a four-year-old, it's much gooder to study for your SAT test than to go to church. For some middle-class parents, it still might be good. I mean, we, we'd like our kids to be in confirmation. We'd like our kids to go to youth group. That would be good. But it's not gooder than playing, playing on a traveling basketball team. Not gooder than studying for a test. And so they never, usually they never sit down and say, well, these, this is our list of goods. They usually just live. But at some point, the Google Calendar demands that they rank the goods. And so the goods get ranked on will we go to church or will we go to cheer when all of a sudden you can't do both. And then parents become deeply moral animals, as we all are. And they have to make a moral decision on what is, I'm sorry, I'm talking in terrible grammar, but what is gooder for their kid. And that gooder is framed by a secular three perspective. What is gooder is that they find the resources to be the self that they could be. Not, if they don't learn these practices, they will burn in hell forever. That would, it's a very different frame. The logic is everything's going fine, and what, what, when I project what is a good life, I project it into the future. 
So this is what's fascinating about the time we live in, um, especially for kind of middle classy people or people who can kind of imagine upward mobility in some ways, that, um, that we don't know what a good life is. Did I say this yesterday? That we don't really know what a good life is, but we know that it's something about the future. We don't have any, we don't give people really any content. It's rare to get any content of what it means to be living the good life now. Did I talk about this yesterday? I did another presentation right after this one. So, uh, you talked about time compressing. Yes. So this, this fits with time compressing. And I'm, I'm, I swear I'm getting to your, your, your really good question. Um, I have a way of doing this. Um, it, that when time gets compressed and it gets shorter, we have this really terrible modern problem, which is that we almost are never, our bodies are almost never where our minds are. That we're always projecting ourselves into the future. So to have a, such a compressed future means that you can really have no content for what a good life is. In the age of authenticity, the ethic of authenticity, one of its problems is it refuses to give any distinct content on what it means, any moral content on what it means to live a good life, because it doesn't want to oppress you or imp impose an authority on you that keeps you from seeking what you think is what it means for you to be you. So we don't really have any content for it. But that doesn't mean there isn't a moral imagination, like you're saying. Parents then thrust what the good life is into the future. You can't know what that is. So your job as a parent is not necessarily to give your kids a vision of what it means to be living a good life. It's to give them the resources and possibility that they can live whatever good life they might want in the future. So it becomes the good life is not lived in the now. The good life is lived in the dream state. I am trying to help you as a parent, and I'm a good parent when I give you every resource that you and someday can live your dream. So think about this against the backdrop of the emissions crisis that just happened with the FBI reveal. You have these incredibly rich parents who game the system to get their kids into USC and Yale. Why? Supposedly education is to help your economic future, that you will make more money than your parents if you get a university education. These kids will have more money than they can ever spend in their lifetime. Why? Why are they doing this? Well, they're doing it because these parents want to be good parents and they have the money to game the system. They're doing it because if their children can matriculate, not just at a university, but at an elite university like USC or Yale, it gives them accessibility and availability. And accessibility and availability are resources you can use to live whatever dream you want in the future. So getting back to your question, parents look at their schedules and they think, um, well, here's the deal. We want to, I, I, I want to be the kind of parent that helps my kid get into a good college. And so I, I want them to go to church. I want them to do this. I want them to do this. But here it comes. Now there's a conflict between these. And I have to do the thing that's going to help my kid harvest the resources to live a good life in the future. And unfortunately, confirmation does not give the same kind of resources that playing on an AAU basketball team does, or obviously getting a good, good test score. But then this is, your, this is your question, is then all of a sudden what happens is that a crisis occurs where the dream state of the kid and the parent was to go to an elite university, and now, you're, as your example was, your child is pregnant. What do you do? 
Well, you turn back to the church that was a lower good and say, say fix this now. So that we can get back on the get get back to the, the, the dream state. So in some ways it's the same logic. It's that now your job is to fix them for this future good instead of living this living the good in the now. Um, help us fix this. Or it's a sense of maybe sometimes it's a it's a confession that um, the good that we were aiming for now has been upended. But that interestingly in a secular two perspective, that becomes all the more reason to go to youth group to have a youth ministry, to go to a church with a youth ministry, is because as your kid seeks for their resources to live their dream, they could be upended by a moral bad choice. But if you go to a church that gives your kids good friends, gives them at least, like, don't do drugs and have sex, then at least it won't upend their future. It's a very different perspective than being taken in and um, sharing in the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. It's very different than Paul's assertion that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That, hey, church will keep you from making a bad decision. Or church gives you some kind of goods um, that will help you be the kind of good kid that can, can get to this, this, this good thing. Does that make a little bit of sense? Yes. Yeah. All right, so secular three. Um, I promised you stories about formation, so we need to get there. So the, 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 the kind of uh, the dialectic, if you will, or the tension or... Um, the back and forth of Secular 3 is between takes and spins. And this is where I kind of left you on Tuesday, and you're like, what? What's that? Well, takes and spins, I think, is a really important perspective because I think this does start to take us into the practicalities of faith formation, is that you can be in your church and think what faith formation is or what even your ministry is, is trying to lock down kids being interested in the religious space or the a-religious space. And then when you tell stories at your church, you'll be like, yeah, man, our kids are so committed to our ministry. They don't go to hockey. They go to Bible study. They don't, they, they, we had three kids who decided not to go to prom, not for any, like, ethical reasons, but because they'd rather um, be involved in this program we're doing. That may say something. It also, you know, I think that also gets you into a bunch of traps. Uh, I think it's, it's more helpful to think about faith formation around a secular three perspective, which is really this, this sense that is there a living God? Is there something more here? And there is a deep search for meaning in it, is that your response to a secular three is that you can take on a spin. That's one way to live inside of a secular three. And what Taylor means by a spin is he doesn't really kind of mean it as like a Fox News, 24-hour news person, that you spin it, that you keep spinning it and you can spin it closed. And now you're starting to see Taylor's own um, commitments here. He's a committed Catholic who believes deeply in the Eucharist, and he thinks that the human life is more than imminent. And he thinks that it actually, he, he wrote a lot of his early work on poetry, and he just thinks we are these crazy, weird, unique animals who write poetry. Like, you can't reduce that. Like, there's something that spills over that we are the we are these weird animals that write music and write poetry and speak, but I mean like in this poetic, symbolic way. So he just thinks that continuing to reduce things down, like you will often hear with like atheists, like, well, you know, all religion is, like I said, false pattern recognition. He thinks that's a spin. It just doesn't, you don't even really have to be a really committed Christian or a committed 
uh, Muslim or something to, to believe that. He just thinks you look at the world and the art within the world and the beauty within it, and it's hard to just spin it closed. But then he says your other option inside of Secular 3 is you can be a spinner um, or you can be an open taker. You can, you can take on an open take. But you have to recognize inside Secular 3, where we're at now, it can only be a take. The best your community can do, the best you can do as a parent for your kid, the best you can do um, as the youth pastor, as the youth director, is give young people a chance to wrestle with a take. It's a take. But takes can be deeply significant. All of our identities, however they are, are built off of takes. This is what I think a, a lifetime is. Like even the fact that I, I take great, I believe deeply, absolutely deeply that my wife loves me. But that's a take. From the experiences, from the dialogue we've had, from the, um, from the events that I've encountered with her, I can only name and I stand on my best account of what's happened between us is that she loves me. But it's only a take. And if I find out something else, it will shatter my assumptions of our relationship, but even of the world itself, because my take has been that she loves me. So what we really invite young people into is, in some sense, 2,000 years of the church and of particular Christian people and communities takes. And I really think what Paul is up against and what Paul is up to is building his church around an open take or a take that Christ and him crucified is the deepest reality that there is. But you don't get to crawl to some kind of crawl up some kind of pedestal and say this is true completely and for sure and we know it. That the Christian faith is always, I think, a proclamation of stories of people who, in faith, believe that this is true, but it remains a take. So there's a, there's a sense of deep humility um, within this. Let me, the example I have, and this came up on Tuesday, but you were like, why is there a slide of this movie? Um, has anyone seen this movie? Yeah. Jeff who lives at home? I mean, I think it's probably like three and a half out of five, maybe four. It's not the greatest movie ever, but I like it a lot. And I think you can, you can stream it on Amazon Prime. So here's, I, try, I can never do this succinctly and well enough, but um, I'm going to act out each of these parts now. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I wish I could do this succinctly, but this is how the story goes. It's kind of a perfect, like, young adult ministry movie because you have Jeff here played by Jason Siegel, and he lives in his mother's basement. And he just he can't get started in life. Just watches TV, smokes some weed, and doesn't really do anything. And then this is Pat, played by um, Ed, Ed Helms. And he's gotten out of the house, and now he's like a manager at a stereo company. But he's got one dream. He's got one good, his good. His good is in the future to buy a Porsche. And he's married, and at the beginning of the movie, he gets a Porsche. They can't afford it. They live in an apartment. But he comes home for breakfast one day, and he tells his wife, with their marriage is kind of on the rocks, that he did it, that he got the dream. That was their dream. Of course, it was never her dream. They got the dream. He's got the Porsche, and she just freaks out, throws his breakfast on his new Porsche, and takes off. Well, Jeff is in the basement. His mom, he gets a phone call. And both of their, their, their fathers died about, I don't know, five, six years ago or something. And it's throw, Jeff, Jeff is really suffering from the fact that his father's gone. And he gets a phone call, 
And he picks it up, and on the other line it says, Hey, is Kevin there? He says, Kevin? There's no Kevin here. He says, Come on, man, I know Kevin is there. Can I talk to Kevin? He's like, No, no, you have the wrong number. There's no Kevin here. Man, I know you're lying to me. Where's Kevin? Let me talk to Kevin. He's like, No, no, there's no Kevin here. Hangs up. And Jeff goes, What? What could that mean? And he's assured it's some kind of sign. And he's looking so deeply for meaning. I mean, he's, he's lost his father and he wants some meaning. So he, his mom calls and says, you need to fix this door. And so he has to go buy some glue. And so he goes out to buy this glue and he's going to get on the bus. And he sees this young man with a, like a basketball jersey on. And on the back it says, Kevin. And he thinks, this is it. I've got to follow this. So he follows Kevin, and he thinks that this is going to lead him to this answer he's looking for. He's a, a ultimate open taker. There's got to be some meaning here. There's got, there's got to be some purpose here, some meaning for the events of my life, like my father dying. There's got to be some significance. So he goes, and he finds Kevin, and then Kevin beats him up and steals his money. <laughs> well, in the midst of getting beaten up by this Kevin, he sees... Pat and Pat's freaking out because he can't find his wife and then they like start to do espionage on his wife and realize she's like having an affair and so they're following around and it becomes like a weird kind of buddy movie but then they end up by happenstance in the graveyard where their father's buried and Pat who is a closed spinner the point of life is just to have a porch Jeff is is there a meaning out there? What could this mean? Is there purpose for this? Why would I have, have this deep suffering? Is there, is there something important about it? Well, they end up in this graveyard where their father is, and Pat has this moment of openness. He says, you know, I've, I've had this dream about Dad. And Dad comes to me, and he says, he has some line, as Dad says. Dad says this to me. And Jeff looks at him, and Jeff's jaw drops. Pat, that's it. Pat, I have that exact same dream. And as soon as he says that, Pat goes back into the clothes spin. Well, I don't know. Must, Dad just must have said that to us. And then Jeff gets super frustrated. He's like, no, 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 Pat. Don't you see? Why won't you see? Why won't you see that there's something calling out to us? There's some kind of meaning here. Well, the movie goes on, and he helps his brother reconcile with his wife. And he's been looking for, if we want to put it in theological language, been looking for his vocation, looking for where it is that God's calling him out, in many ways calling him out to do ministry. Well, he ends up, they end up bumper-to-bumper traffic on this bridge, and Pat realizes his wife is cars ahead. And he has had this transformation through this journey with, with Jeff. And he gets out of his car, and he runs through the traffic to see his wife and be reconciled with them with her, and it becomes like this Hollywood movie as they embrace great rom- rom-com. And then Jeff sits back in the back seat of, the, of the, the cab and says to the cabbie, he says, hey, did you ever think that you would find your purpose and you were just kind of like disappointed? He says, what do you mean? The guy has no idea what he's talking about. So I, you just thought it would be, you know, more? And the guy has like no sense of what's going on. And then the next scene, we see him get out of the car, and he starts sprinting down this log-jammed uh, freeway. And then we see him onto the bridge, jump onto the bridge, dive in the water, and there's a car in it. 
and then he goes under the water, he pulls these two little girls out of the water, and then they come up and they say, our dad, our dad, our dad is down there. So he goes back under the water, and then the father pops up, and in good Hollywood movie, Jeff never comes up. And if this was a French movie, the credits would roll. <laughs> but that's not what it is, it's an American movie. So Jeff pops up, and then the ending scene is Jeff sitting back in his mom's basement. And the little two girls come on the news. Like there's news coverage of them. And the two little girls say, um, well, we just don't know what would have ever happened to us if our daddy would have died. It would have just ruined our lives. We're seeing their narrative and his narrative linked. And then, of course, they come back on the news coverage and another person comes on. And the person he saved is Mayor Kevin something. It's got a beautiful movie. But what I'm getting at here is it's a kind of a perfect of a secular three perspective is that there's this sense that there's something. There's something more. I'm not really sure what it is. But I surely, unlike what the movie does, I surely need a community of people that have a bunch of stories and a bunch of traditions and ways of looking at the world to journey with me and figuring out what this is and to actually make sense of the events of my own life, like the loss of my father. Or the fact that I feel this way. Or the fact that we had to move when I was little and I never felt like I belonged. Like I try to, there's got to be a reason for it. Well, you can take that and you can spin it closed and you can be Pat and you can just try to get a Porsche. Or you could be like Jeff and you get to be a little weird and, you know, living in your mom's basement and stuff. But there's this deep yearning. And what does it ultimately lead him to do? It leads him into this incredible act of doing ministry for these other young women to link his own narrative with theirs and to participate in something really deep and profound. So that becomes a secular three perspective. All right, so watch the movie. Tell me what you think. All right, so let's, let's think then about uh, it this way as we round this out, is that when I really think, well, remember when we're back to our stories about our religious professionals, when they said faith, they really thought about it in a secular two perspective. We want our kids to have faith. We want them to stick around. When Marissa and her mom said faith, they said, I want to know what is the point of my lifetime and why do I live it? And does this church have anything, does this community of people have any way of helping me figure out what's my lifetime and why do I live it? And maybe I would even figure out my lifetime is something much bigger and, and belongs in a community of people. So they had a very different perspective. So I just together by then thinking of um, faith formation a little bit and sharing um, my own kind of triad here. But first we have to kind of get to this question of like what is faith after all? And I told you that I have a kind of aversion towards adjective, ad, adding adjectives in front of faith. Because I do think it just becomes spin for a more secular two perspective. And Paul thinks something I think very different about faith. And I, th I don't think Paul would, if, if Paul would ever put an adjective in front of faith, I don't think it would be vibrant or consequential. I think it would be very different. So think with me for just a few seconds about 2 Corinthians and the whole of kind of 2 Corinthians. It's one of my favorite Pauline texts because, I don't know, it's just so interesting. So you have to think of, first of all, Corinth. And Corinth is basically like the Las Vegas of our world. It's not, Rome is kind of like D.C., but Corinth is like Vegas. Like, cool stuff happens in Corinth, you know? There's just cool stuff going on. And Paul has been there, and Paul has helped found a church right on the strip, like right there. 
But then Paul has to go away and do his other stuff. And while he's gone, a bunch of new members show up. And I'm kind of making this up here. But they're new members that like work in the Britney Spears show. Like they are uh, in the Blue Man group. Like they're in the industry and they show up to this church. And Paul starts sending his letters around. And even these new members read these letters and they like them. Think of this Paul. He's a powerful dude. I mean, these letters, they, they get to you. Well, what 2 Corinthians is, is between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul shows back up in Corinth. And things do not go well. Because all these new members are expecting something from hearing about Paul and reading Paul's letters. They are expecting when Paul shows up to meet Brad Pitt. (laughs) And what they get instead is Danny DeVito. (laughs) And folks, there is a world of difference in sexiness between Brad Pitt and Danny DeVito. And so basically, (laughs) Pat's like, I don't know. And basically what happens in this letter is that these people are not impressed. And so 2 Corinthians is Paul basically defending himself next to this. So he shows up, and it's bad because he shows up and he's he's Danny DeVito, and they're like, what? This is the Paul of the letters? No. No, 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 no. We could never book him, um, you know, uh, at the Mirage. Like, this would not work. And then it gets worse. Because, you know, it's one thing to look like Danny DeVito, but if you preach, you know, if you, if you, if you preach in a great style, then there you go. Well, he gets up to preach, and they're like, what? And even Paul repeats their criticism in the letter. He says, the Paul of the letters you like, but the Paul who shows up. No, 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 no. Like, they don't like that Paul. So he writes 2 Corinthians, and he must have, he just must have had, like, a Swedish Minnesota grandmother because the letter is so passive aggressive. If you've ever spent time in the upper Midwest, we are the most passive. Minnesota nice actually means we just are judging you silently. (laughs) In Minnesota, if you preach a sermon, they're like, well, that was very nice. That could mean change their life. Could mean you are a lunatic, and they hate everything you did. So he goes totally passive-aggressive in the letter. He's like, well, listen, I know that, that you're upset with me, but you know, if I wanted to, I could tell you that no one has gone hungry for the gospel more than me. I mean, I could say that, but I'm not going to tell you that. I mean, I could tell you that I've been beaten for the gospel. I could tell you that, but I'm, I, I probably shouldn't tell you that. I mean, I even know a guy who's been taken up into the upper heavens. I could tell you that, but I'm not going to tell you that. And he goes on and on like this. Like, Paul, you are telling them that. So he gives this passive-aggressive thing. But then he gets to his real theological point, his theological hook. And he just confesses. And he admits it. He says, yeah, you are exactly right. I am nothing to look at. And I am an average preacher at best. But don't you see? Don't you get it? These are my very ordination credentials, he essentially says. Because don't you ever forget, your God comes into this world crucified and broken. That your God is a crucified God. So whatever faith is for Paul, it's inseparable from the cross. Part of the problem with secular two as opposed to thinking, thinking in the vein of secular three is to even go back to Bonhoeffer preached this sermon in 1937, 38 
There's a confirmation sermon on Mark 9. And it's a really haunting sermon because we're thinking 38-ish year. War, full war is going to happen in 39. And Bonhoeffer knows it's coming. And it's coming heavy and hard. And so he's got about eight or nine confirmands. And he preaches this sermon to them. And he knows that they could be in a load of trouble. Like to confirm your faith is not like for us. Like, hey, at least in the upper Midwest, you're going to get a $50 check from your grandmother and get to go to Denny's. No, 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 no. They could, down the road, have a gun to their head and ask if they'll believe this. So it's an incredibly somber sermon. And he tells them that we should not take too much in this moment. That actually confirm, the confirmation ceremony is important, but the only place you truly confirm your faith is out in the world. And it is going to be a dark one for you kids. But then he does this, this Mark 9 text thing, and he does this really powerful thing that we, I think we should, could, is really insightful for youth ministry. He says, listen, faith that is banked is dead faith. Faith cannot be banked. Faith is like manna from heaven. If you try to bank faith, it will go bad. Essentially what American youth ministry is, is trying to bank faith. It's like, hey, if we have a strong enough youth program, if we can get them to know these things, be committed to these things, then when they go to university and they go into that class and they go to that philosophy class or they're just with all those secular they'll be able to live up the crude interest of all the faith that we've banked in them through the children's ministry and through the youth ministry and Bonhoeffer is saying don't work that way faith cannot be banked all faith can be he says is enough to make it through today that's all it can be but here's the thing of course and this is why there's a formation element to it is if you can teach young people to have enough faith to get through today, you've given them the practices, the take, to then tomorrow get enough faith to just make it through tomorrow. And then again the next day to have enough faith to make it through the next day. But I think the problem is, and this is why the secular two thing just gets at us, is that we think we've got we to gotta, we gotta find a way to bank this all. Because if we can bank it all, then we keep them in the religious space. And then when they're 45, they'll still be members of our United Methodist Church. And we got it, we got it, we got it. But it doesn't work that way. What we want to do is journey alongside of them and give them the practices, the narratives, reflection, interpretation of their own stories, of the stories in the world, to have enough faith to get through today. And I think that's closer to what Paul is getting at. Acts 9 is such an interesting story because we have Saul on his way, of course, to persecute the church, but really to be a good Jew and to make sure that things are all in line. And then he's knocked to the ground, and the voice comes that says, it's I, Jesus, that you persecute. And then we're told in like this very like screenplay-ish way that then Saul is blind on the street called, at Judas's house on the street called Straight. I don't know why I like that so much. But he's in that, in that house. And you have to imagine that his life has just been broken in two. Now there's a New Testament scholar who's a little bit, he's not out there, but he's, he's a unique kind of thinker. His name is Michael Gorman. And he does this really interesting thing with the story. And he thinks um, that what's going on is that Paul has a certain kind of sense of what it means to be, to be doing this, or we could even think what it means to be, to be acting in a good way. And his, his model is Phineas. Remember who Phineas is? 
Phineas is Aaron's grandson after the Exodus. And Phineas is, why he thinks this is because Phineas is kind of glorified as a zealot. And we think Paul was kind of a zealot here. Well, Phineas is important also because Phineas is, there's only two people in the biblical text who it's reckoned unto them as righteous. Right? Uh, and that's Abraham and Phineas. And Phineas is called righteous because the Israelites start hanging out with the Canaanites and they start, it starts going, um, oh, I don't know, it starts going very HBO and they start, uh, you know, not just hanging out, but like, you know, getting it on. And Phineas does, wants nothing of this, so he breaks into a tent and sees an Israelite man and a Canaanite woman having sex and he takes his spear and it goes all Game of Thrones and he goes right through both of them and kills both of them, purifying the boundary between the heathen Gentiles and the Jews, and it's reckoned unto him as righteous. So Gorman's playing with this idea that here's Saul, and he's walking to Damascus, and he is going to be, in his day, the contemporary Phineas. He is going to purify the boundary. He is going to take the ravaged dog and mercifully put it down before it turns and bites us all. Well, then he's knocked to the ground. And now he's blind in Judas's house on the, on the street called Straight. And every life narrative he thought he had has been upended. And we don't know this at all, but it's very possible because we know that Romans is built around this. And for Paul, obviously, Abraham becomes so important and faith becomes so important. And so it's possible that he starts thinking about Abraham and that Abraham um, has a very different framework, that Abraham, his righteousness is reckoned to him not because he puts a spear through the center of somebody, but because he has faith. But faith in what? Well, Abraham is such an interesting case because Abraham is kind of, if you guys have read Abraham's story lately, Abraham's pretty much a doofus. I mean, to me, he's, he's kind of like a bumbling um, uh, uh, Forrest Gump, really. You know, like he like sells his wife off into marriage to someone else without telling them. and He, just keep, he keeps on doing stuff wrong and then falling into this. But he, he gets a word from, from God, that's not even the, the God of his fathers, and he goes off. And of course, the, the, big, the big move of, of Abraham's faith is that, first of all, he goes. He hears the word of God and goes. But then he's told that he will be the father of a great nation. And years go by, and it doesn't happen. And then decades go by, and it doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen. Well, the smart one of the couple is Sarah, actually. She's like the smart, right one. Even in some sense, the faithful one, Bill, she has some bad moments too, folks, especially with Hagar. She's mean. She's darn right mean. And uh, so, but she, she believes God's word too. So what does she do? She looks at Hagar, his fertile concubine, and gives them to Abraham. And Abraham, again, our bumbling Forrest Gump is like, okay, sounds good to me. And so there they go. And Ishmael is born. And then it is, 13 years later, like he is in your middle school ministry, Ishmael is, and every night he's been told that he is the promise, and God shows up again and is like, hey, yeah, um, just want to tell you, Abraham, Ishmael's not the promise job. Well, you think you could have told me like 12 and a half years earlier, um, so you can imagine that walk back to Phil and Sarah. And he has to walk back to Sarah and be like, ah, yeah, God showed up again. Really weird thing happened. Um, so Ishmael is uh, not the promise. Really? Yeah, really weird. Gets weirder. Um, 
God actually said, you know, you're not about 90 and stuff, and that you and I were going to have to, like, you know, well, I ordered some Viagra, and we're going to have to see uh, what happens here. And you, she, I mean, she has, she's the actual hero of faith, because her response should be, hell no. You keep your wrinkly body over there. I will stay here. And in many ways, it's deeper existential. Like, there's nothing more painful in life than to have finally conceded yourself to your faith and then be told that you have to try to get back on that roller coaster and hope again? Like, what faith that she, she does that? And of course, then Isaac is born. And just so it is so deeply written into Israel's history that this child of promise comes out of a dead womb, when Isaac is about the age of Ishmael, Ishmael was at 13, God says to him, you take that boy up on a mountain and you stick a knife in his throat one of the most, I mean it is, one of the most terrifying stories of the whole biblical text. And he goes up and um, God intervenes. But it's so deeply written into Israel's history that out of nothingness and death, out of impossibility, God moves. God moves when it is impossible, when it is dead. And now Paul is laying on the street called Straight where his own life has hit nothing but impossibility. And the story of Abraham becomes really important. So what is faith? Faith for Paul is seeking for the living Jesus Christ in your death experience. It's being Jeff and seeking for meaning, seeking for Jesus Christ to encounter you, not outside the denied narrative that you've lost your father, but inside of it. It's deeply in this very experience. So, um, going more quickly here, I think that faith formation, if there's a, another triad, I, wanna, I want us to think about these three Greek words, which should make you vomit with five minutes left in, in this presentation. But that there's this movement from kenosis, I think. Um, we'll have to go quicker through this. The, the really beautiful thing, man, it is raining out there. Uh, the beautiful thing, I think, about kenosis is that we often read kenosis, like the text, you know, um, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, right? Though he was in the form of God. Gorman makes the argument that that though most definitely should be translated as though. But it also has a sense to it of because. So um, you could read it as who because he was in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. That's a profound statement, because now it's a statement that says the very nature of the Father in relationship to the Son, but the very nature of the Father himself, the very God of Israel, is a God of humble action, a God who comes to, a God who is present within. So there's a sense of kenosis that then leads to hypostasis, and now you're starting to, your brain is starting to want to crawl at your ear. Um, hypostasis, what I want you to think about is an encounter with person personhood. Remember that the big breakthrough of Christianity in the 4th century around the creeds, Curtis and I were talking about the creeds at the beginning, is that the Cappadocian fathers made this assertion to figure out how to really think about the Trinity, that God is one usa and three hypostasis. One being and three persons. So there's a deep sense of persons. Now just let this go over you and I'm going to try to narrate this experience for you. So there's a, a sense between kenosis and hypostasis that there's a death experience. And this is one of the things that's so beautiful about that Mark 9 story is that the person who gets overlooked in that Mark 9 story is Ananias. 
that Ananias shows up to Paul blind in Judas' house on the street called Straight, assuming that this is a kind of Stranger Things um, uh, Star Wars trap, like in the Cloud City with, uh, you know, when um, uh, Lando has the trap. That, it, it seems like this could be a trap. But he goes, in some sense risking his own life, and what does he do? He really shares Paul's narrative with him. He ministers to him. He shares in his death experience. He participates with him in this. He takes, a, he takes the humility of going and then sharing in his person. And it leads to a transformation. And in at least the Greek tradition, there's this sense of theosis, of being taken up and transformed. All right, so what I want to say is that formation, as you think about formation in your ministry, and a formation that makes sense within a secular three, moves from kenosis to hypostasis to theosis. And now if I send you out, you will vomit and go crazy. So let me narrate this for you because you're feeling like I kind of have this, but I'm not so sure if I know kind of what you mean. So let me tell you two stories that will then link these three words together. And this is kind of how we'll conclude these, these two stories. You maybe have heard me tell these stories before because they are so meaningful to me, but uh, at least how I, I think about these. So uh, I have a friend, Presbyterian pastor. He's in this church, and the church is having pretty significant conflict, and not just conflict within the church, but conflict within the session of the church. So these are, if you're not Presbyterian, you're you know, the leadership, I guess, council of, of the church. There's, there's, there's conflict. And so he's going to have his session, annual session meeting, and he decides that he wants to have, do some kind of exercise that can get them beyond fighting over political issues and wants to make sure blood isn't spilled around like what color the carpet should be. So he decides, he remember this at some continuing education event or something that, uh, so he tries it. So he sets up five chairs in one direction and then five chairs facing those. And then on one side are pads and paper. And he invites people to sit facing each other knee to knee and the people with the paper are supposed to take about five minutes and sketch the face of the other person. Kind of like what happened in the basement where you're supposed to stare at the person for four minutes. But to sketch this. And then they would sketch it and there would be no talking. You'd just look at this person and then he would say switch and they would, they would you know, switch and then you'd do, do the same thing for everyone else. Well, when, just as you would expect, like people felt so weird. Like people were making faces at each other and just it was so awkward. But after a round, people kind of got into it. Well, this church had two people in it that I think every church has these two people. One was Jody, and Jody was the kind of person, um, she stumbled into the church when she was about 35, and she just was a workhorse for the church. She paid out of her own pocket for their beach service every summer. She, she, when they went through a pastoral transition, she led not only the call committee, but she was just kind of there, and she got all the all the interim um, uh, preaching pulpit filled. I mean, she was just a workhorse. And she did it always with joy. And churches, especially mid-sized and small churches, need people like this. So Jody was there. But then every church also has a Dave. And Dave's the kind of guy who also is kind of a workhorse, but he's the kind of guy that likes to tell you that every decision you made has been stupid. Like why the car you bought was a bad car. And he's the kind of guy who they needed to fix the door of the church and he locked it for the like first 20 minutes and so people couldn't get in. He, uh, one session meeting they talked about how they needed to get giving up and he was found in the coffee hour shaking down new members for money basically. I mean like he's just a bombastic kind of guy. So they get done with this and they decide to debrief it. What was this experience like? And everyone said it was weird man. Like I don't know where you heard about this but this was a weird experience. 
But yeah, it was meaningful. And they kind of broken the tension. And they were ready to actually like each other as human beings before they would move on in this. Except as they're almost done, Dave says, well, oh yeah, yeah, it was good for me too. They're like, well, that's great, Dave. He says, except. He says, except. Except when Jody was looking at me. And he says, when Jody was looking at me, I just felt judged. He says, I don't know. And then he just kind of goes off. I just felt judged. I just felt like she was, I just felt like she was judging me. I just, I just felt uncomfortable. And my friend kind of gets, Dave, Dave, thanks. That's really important. Thank you for feeling safe enough to share that. But can you help us understand why you felt this way? And he goes off again. I don't know. I just, she, just, she just judged me. I just, I just felt small. I don't know. I just felt uncomfortable. Dave, 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 that's really important. Thank you so much for that. But can you help us understand why you were kind of having this reaction? And then he stopped, and he was silent for a long time. And no one knew. Like, all the oxygen was sucked out of the room. People couldn't even look, and they were holding their breath, and it wasn't going to happen. He didn't know. My friend didn't know if he was going to stand up and storm out. And then Dave started to talk, and then he stopped. And he said, yeah, yeah, no, that's it. And he started to talk again, and he said, well, I guess... Well, yeah, I mean, most of you know my daughter, um, Diane. And I told a lot of you that Diane just moved back home with us. And a lot of you asked, is she going to go to church now? And I said, no, she can't go to church because she works on Sundays. But I was lying to you all. Diane never worked on Sundays. But actually, Diane doesn't really work at all now. Because, see, the reason she moved home is because... Um, Diane suffers from some pretty debilitating depression. And she's been in a bad place, and she wasn't able to get out of bed and get to work, and she's now lost her job. And he said, I think the thing is that, yeah, the thing is that when I look at Jody, I see who Diane could be if she didn't have depression. And everything changed. He was no longer a-hole blockage. He was a person. And there was a movement from his own willingness, as well as creating the space for a canonic moment of self-emptying, of being prepared to see another person. And then in seeing another person, creating the space for the narrative of their experience, to wrap them up and take them into an event of transformation. So in many ways, formation with our young people it's first and foremost, and this is a hard thing with this generation, to encourage humility, to form the Christian practice of humility. But not just humility so you can be like, well, people are better than me, and I'm not that good at stuff. That's actually a passive-aggressive way of not being humility. But the kind of humility that says, I am the kind of creature who needs other people. That human beings are the kind of creatures who need other people. And human beings are the kind of creatures who need other stories and need others to hear their stories. And then to have this deep experience of personhood is what I mean by the hypostatic. And in that experience, conditioned by the kenosis of humility, that this moment of sharing in another person's life as really an active ministry of both giving and receiving ministry, there becomes something profoundly transformational that you're taken up into something. Ananias humbles himself, shares in Paul's person, and Paul is, Saul is no longer Saul, but Paul, living in a completely different narrative of the one who's been crucified. 
You cannot pass on the narrative of the one who's been incarnate, crucified, and resurrected to young people if it doesn't take the embodied form of kenosis and shared hypostasis of actually sharing in their person. Christianity is an embodied reality of both giving and receiving ministry. The church doesn't just give ministry. The church needs to receive ministry as much as give ministry. So the church says to its neighbor, or the Christian says to their neighbor, I will... I am willing to be with and for you as God is with and for me and with and for the world. I will be there, but I also need to receive from you. So I will feed you, but I need to be fed by you or in, in some form like that. All right, we're out of time. I have another story. Okay, you're, you're nodding. What time is worship start, by the way? 11.45. Okay, we're going to do this in five minutes. Is that okay? If you, need to, if you need to go, go. If you want to stay, stay. I'll record this. Um, because I promised you two stories, and you guys nodded. So um, this is the last story, and just, just to illustrate this, and you maybe have heard me tell this story too many times, but um, I think it illustrates this, uh, th- this movement. So a few years ago, I was, in C- I was in Seattle doing some interviews for a book that I was doing, and I was interviewing these people, and I was asking them if they had an experience where they felt really deeply ministered to. And I was doing this thing called life history interviewing, where you like write six big questions, and then you have a conversation, you just let the conversation go, but you record it, and then you transcribe it, and you kind of look for themes of these deep narratives that you hear. Well, I was meeting with this woman. She was probably 35-ish, maybe. She came into her pastor's office. The pastor had set up the, the meeting, and she looked like she did not want to be there. Like she was like she was willing to do this for her, um, her pastor, but she, she wanted to be somewhere else. So I was thinking, like, this is not going well. And so I uh, decided I had one more question to ask and decided, well, maybe this one won't work. So I asked her one more question. Her name was Rachel. And I said, Rachel, and she had been telling me why she was so busy. She was a single mom. She she had two elementary-age kids. And these things were, you know, she lived 35 minutes away from the church. And so I said, Rachel, have you ever had an experience where you felt really ministered to? Like so ministered to, like you felt like the presence of God was there. And she looked at me and her whole disposition changed. And she said, yeah, I have. I've had an experience like that. And she said this. She said, I'd never told the story before, which is utterly tragic. She said, I was, um, it was a few years ago now, um, and she said, my husband went on a business trip. He got on a plane, flew from, well, uh, from Seattle to Chicago. He was gone 22 and a half hours, and I got a phone call. The phone call said, ma'am, hi, um, my name is so-and-so, and I work at the Hilton Gardens here um, in Chicago. And, um, well, ma'am, I, I, I'm not really sure how to tell you this, ma'am. Um, our cleaning crew uh, went through your husband's room today, ma'am. Um, ma'am, it, it appears there's been a, some kind of event. And, um, well, ma'am, your husband's dead, ma'am. Uh, we've made arrangements, and we've had his body sent to this hospital morgue. Ma'am, you need to make arrangements to identify your husband's body and uh, 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 do what you need to do with it. Here's the address. So she said she wrote it down on a little business card. And as she was hearing this, she said her whole living room just, like the color bled out of it. And it turned black and white. She looked at an infant and a toddler and she thought to herself, my life is over. What do I do? What do I do? So I knew no one in Chicago. So I got on a plane. I flew to Chicago. She said, I made arrangements. I'd identify that body. I'd sign any paperwork I needed to get it to get his body flown back to Seattle, I'd get back on a plane and I'd get home. I knew no one. She landed at O'Hare, went down to the cab stand, had the business card, gave the address to the cabbie, and he drove. She said, I should have noticed this. She said, I should have known this, this, but I was drowning in grief. 
So I should have noticed that he did not drop me off at the front. He parked. So I was drowning in grief. So I walked in, and, and they had my itinerary. Um, they knew when I would be arriving. And so as soon as I came in, they immediately took me back. She said, I stood in this room, and I waited for this to happen. So I waited for the to bring my husband's body forward, and they did. They wheeled it forward. So the man came and grabbed the sheet to pull it back, and I knew when that sheet would go back, my life would be over. And as soon as I grabbed the sheet and started to pull it back, she said, I felt a hand on my shoulder. And she said, an arm came around the front with the water bottle. And then she started to sob and sob, and she said, she said, it, it was the cabbie. She said, I never felt more ministered to. She said, I got back on that plane, and I knew my life would never be the same. But I knew that God would not leave me. I knew that God would see me through. Talk about formation. I don't know anything about that cavity. We don't, she doesn't know anything about that cavity. But that event of shared personhood and ministry changes her life. It becomes the true manifestation for her, the true concrete experience of the living Christ amongst her. This man first moves canonically. He has every right. He has done his job. He could drop her off. He should be getting another fare. But he puts that aside to go and to share in her person, to have a hypostatic experience, and to share in her, in, in her person in and through her experience of a death experience. And that shared ministry in a death experience does something utterly profound where the eventful encounter of a resurrection and the joy of new life breaks through it. That recapitulates in many ways her suffering into new possibility. And what is dead is now made alive without ever minimizing the burden of the death experience as well. I think the kind of formation we're getting at is a kind of formation that moves from kenosis to hypostasis to theosis. And this can work inside a secular three perspective. And I've taken too much time and been far too rude, and you have to get to chapel in less than five minutes or Abigail will murder me. <laughs> and I do not want to be murdered, so let me pray for you and then say amen. God, thank you for these people. Bless them as they go. And may they leave this campus, may they leave this room knowing one thing. The one thing is that you are well pleased. That you are well pleased. And along with that, God, I guess I pray they also know that ministry is an incredibly beautiful thing. It is weak and it looks pathetic, but it is the strongest force in the universe. For it is the only thing we know that participates in turning what is dead into life. So may we help our young people end as such a profound reality. Amen. Thank you guys. Sorry I've been so chatty. Have a great day.